Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? That's one of their tricks is they make everything look like it comes out of a doctor's office. So people like, are like, oh, I'm going to get no Botox. You know, I was thinking yeah. like my agents keep sending me, they send everybody. It's not just me, like injectable auditions, which I never take because uh-huh. but I, I hate, I have these lines, you know, like right uh-huh. there. My uncle really has them too. And anyway, I got them from my mom and I was like, maybe a little Botox. But the problem with Botox is like anything, it's addictive as hell. So like, Clearly, if you look at people, they start with one little thing, right? And then they're like, oh, but yeah. up here. Oh, but over here. Oh, but here. And then they end up looking like that. You know what? I, what I, I also think about that, um, you do it, I, I think people do it because they they want to look younger, whether it's injectables or fillers or um, having Whatever. surgery. Mm-hmm. I think what ends up happening, even to people who profess that they really like that look, in addition to the fact that people all start to look the same, um, pe- people stop looking like themselves. And it's very disconcerting to be interacting with somebody who you knew to look one way, and now they don't look like themselves. So it, in a way, it doesn't matter how you know smooth your skin is or... Because if you don't look like you, then it hasn't worked, right? Right. And then it, and then it's very hard to have normal interactions. I told you how my friend didn't recognize her own mother. After, no, oh, my God. oh, my God. So my friend, my friend used to, she's not really my friend anymore. But anyway, um, she, she went to her sister's wedding and her mother had had so much, and she hadn't seen her mother in a year. And her mother had had so much plastic surgery that when her mother was walking her sister down the aisle, she didn't recognize, she didn't, she couldn't tell if it was her own mother. Oh, my God. She, she was like, it's it looks like kind of like my mom, but can you imagine that? I would have a panic attack and pass out if that, if I didn't recognize my own mother. I mean, yeah, that, dude, that's like invasion of the body snatchers. You said it was Who the, needs the it? She was like, I think that's my mom. Oh my God. That's horrible. Honestly, we all really just need to like work on self-acceptance. Uh, that's the most beautiful thing. I mean, not to sound cheesy, but like that, uh, if you really, and it, this is true for me personally, if I feel good, I look good. Yeah. If I don't feel good, I don't yeah. look good. It's yeah. it's very straightforward. Yeah. And it's, like, yeah. And it's, it's not, um, God, I think we are so, it, it's so simple. And yet people, we, we, we loved like, like our guest Shayna was saying, we love to be a mess. We love to make things more complicated than they are. We'd love to really get in there and it ha- we have to be this huge, uh, ordeal instead of just saying, Oh, let me work on self-acceptance. Um, and that brings me to I've I just was watching Wild Wild Country. Yeah, tell us. Okay, so I was trying to watch the Paris Hilton one, but I couldn't watch a skinny person. I just was like, I can't watch the skinny person. <laughs> so let me watch. And she is so skinny. I mean, it's really like quite something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, so I said, okay, let me. And I had never seen Wild Wild Country, and I thought. 
that I had, but then I was like, oh, I have not seen this. So, you know, it's this, it's this movie about this, um, it, it, this cult, um, in, uh, India, Pune, India, then, then they move to Oregon and take over this in the eighties, take over this land. But what, what it really made me also think about was the idea of documentaries, right? So I'm not sure I'm a huge documentary fan because, well, or a true documentary fan, because I like when people have a point of view. So, so, so what I found hard, and I'm not done yet, but I binged it yesterday. But I, what I find hard about Wild Wild Country is that it's really pretty open as to is Sheila the, the quote mastermind or is Osho or he used to be known as the Bhagwan. Did he, did he, is he the mastermind? So it goes back and forth in this really sort of um, ambiguous way. And I'm like, wait, just tell me, is Sheila the, and I think that's my own problem with not with black and white thinking, right? It's like, just tell me, is Sheila the bad guy here or is Sheila the good guy? Cause I, I can't be going back and forth with these idiots. It's that, is it that you want, you have, you do have your own opinion, but you don't, you don't consider it set unless you have the idea that somebody else shares your opinion? I think it's, I, I think that's probably part of it. And I also think that I like, yeah, I like when people say, this is what I think. What do you think? Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, I'm sure it goes back and speaks to my codependent nature, but I also think that it's like, which I, yeah, I like being told like this person is bad and this person is right. Um, Right. But I don't know. I just, I, I find it infuriating when, right. There are two sides. There are more than two sides, but two sides sometimes presented in a documentary and it goes back and forth and then I get confused. Right. And they're doing that. They're playing with your emotions. I'm like, Oh, Sheila, Sheila was really, she was the one. And then I'm like, was she though? Wasn't she just sort of a victim of a misogynistic guru? And then I'm like, no, she was really evil. So I think I don't like being manipulated. And that's the the, the purpose. Art does that all the time. Right? right. And it's both. It's both. Everybody. I mean, maybe this isn't true, but I'll just say everybody who's a perpetrator is also a victim of something right. else. I mean, you just made that you don't maybe that you don't know what that their victimhood surrounds, but you can guarantee You know, because nobody's born a monster. No, I don't believe that. Right? No, I don't believe that. Everybody, everybody gets there honestly. Yeah, I think one way or another, everyone has earned their stripes, kind of a thing, right? And I I think for the weird thing is too, like there are so many people that like love Osho. Like I didn't realize the the Bhagwan became Osho later after he died. So, so I have friends that I didn't finish it. I started watching it, but I didn't finish it. So you'll have to fill in the blanks. Well, the bottom line is this guy, it's the typical cult story, right? So, um, but it's like Westerners came, discovered this guy that, that, that they all thought was amazing. Everyone's lacking inside. So we're so looking for a guru. And um, this is 1960s through 1990. And it's like, it's a typical story. But what makes it interesting is that this woman right? That this woman became his quote secretary, Sheila. She was from India, but she sort of took the, and I haven't finished it yet either. I have a couple more episodes, but she took the fall for everything of this cult. And Osho, the the, the Indian guru man who changed his name, and I don't know the origin story of why his name changed, but Osho 
remained intact and is like a, and it just goes to, it remains a guru, like in, in death and his books are, you know, and actually funny enough, the girl, the woman who, who I just said didn't recognize her own mother was a huge Osho follower. And she, they, and I'm like, Oh man, people still, he came out unscathed basically. And Sheila, the, the woman became this pariah. And I think she went to jail. Oh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's figures that just figures but what flavor of cult is it is it a sex cult money no. cult drug cult? what kind of a it was a cult where they it's weird because well i don't know about weird all cults are kind of weird but it, it is a cult where they literally you really buy in they wanted to create a society based on sharing and love but it then creeped into, and it was no, not a sex cult. It was a religious cult. So they all, they all, but, and it was a, it was a religious cult where they worshiped this guru um, who didn't have a specific religion. He was creating his own, the, the, the new man, he called it. And um, they got into trouble because the interesting thing is that they decided to move to Oregon and try to take over all, they started slowly buying all this land. And the white Oregonians were like, oh, no, you guys are, you know, not. And, and a lot of the a lot of the cult members were white, but the the head guru was Indian and a lot of uh, some of the disciples were brown skinned and blah, blah, blah. So the, the Oregonians. So it's really the story of like this town in Oregon, Antelope, Oregon, that cannot stand this cult being on their land. And that was the real problem. And then Sheila and got a little crazy and started poisoning all the Oregonians. Oh, she started poisoning them because she wanted their money or no, yeah. she wanted their land and, she, and they hated her. And Sheila became, and, and, and they became so irate at the white Oregonian old people. They started poisoning them. To like knock him off. Oh my god! It, it's oh my it, god. and look, she was pissed off. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> clearly, but I mean, they were not nice to her. They would call their name. I mean, it was bad. So, and they won. They set up this whole town. And we were too young, but they like won. The, the the cult won and and changed the name to Rajanish. Of from from the Oregon town became Rajanish. Oh yeah, Oregon. yeah. Because on the other side of the country, they're doing it in Clearwater, Florida. It, it, it it's all about your um, it's all about your ability to manipulate people. How much mass appeal and charm you have. I have something to say to all the ladies out there. A guru is a red flag. Yeah, and and it may not necessarily be somebody who's calling themselves a guru, but if you start to feel like if you start to feel like your attraction to somebody is that you want them to tell you how to live your life, mm -hmm. that should be your first sign that right. this is not. And, and as history has borne out, if it does get to a certain, um, you know, level, you're going to be blamed in the end. Totally. You are the scapegoat. Like just no going in. If shit goes wrong, it's going to fall on you. It's not going to fall on him usually. And it's, and it, and it happened to her and she, and I'm, I don't know what ends up. She's still alive because she's, the documentary just came out and Sheila is her name and she's still and she's talking. So she's alive, but I think she went to jail. I think some crazy shit went down. So yeah, I think, and it was interesting. It wasn't, um, uh, and it goes back to what we're all, we always say about cults and cults of personality, which is just an extreme inner longing to feel okay and to feel protected and to feel taken care of, which is why we do, we do that with doctors. Like, you know, 
everybody. We just want somebody to have the answers. We're right. just looking for somebody else to, and, and, and all the other person really has to do is behave as if they do have all of the answers. The last thing, and you know, this from being a therapist, your, your clients always want you to tell them what to do. Right. Because they 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 either think you know or they want to think you know the and, answer and, and they don't that was always a really yeah. interesting part of it was like when people would ask you that yeah my clients would just basically be like can you give me money <laughs> because i worked with a clientele that was pretty down and out but they but that's an answer too it's like can you take care of me you know can you can you take yeah, care of me can absolutely you- can you be my mom? Can you be my, my everything? And it's, and it's, um, and it's real tricky. It's like, I was thinking too about those, um, sperm doctors that end up putting their own sperm in the sperm banks and giving oh, no. Oh, no. So, I, oh, no. so, so that's a cult too. The guy oh, wanted to, God. yeah. So it's just, it's very interesting. I was thinking about like how far people go to, I mean, that's just really disgusting obviously but it's also the same thing of like wanting to be the believing that you have the power wanting the power and 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 abusing your power so anyway so all this to say i'm watching wild wild country and it's and it's bringing up emotions of like i don't or or just the thought of like as a filmmaker do you documentary documentarian do you have to have a point of view are you not supposed to have a point of view it's just interesting to me you know like I, hmm, do you have to, I think, well, don't you think though that, I don't know. I, I, I don't think I've ever watched a documentary in which I didn't ultimately side with what I think is the documentarian's point of view. Mm -hmm. I mean, they can go, it's really, it's really an art that they can go a long way of laying out all of the facts and then kind of diverting you in this direction or, well, actually the, the Nexium thing was a good example of that because one documentary had you believe, I mean, it, they both blamed the head guy, whatever, right. but one documentary had you believing one thing and another one had you believing something slightly different. So I, I mean, I, I think that, pretty much you're going to have the opinion of the documentarian, even if you don't know that that's what the opinion that the documentarian has, because they're usually leading you towards a certain conclusion. Don't you think? I think so. I I, I can't quite, I think that's it. And I I can't quite tell where wild, wild country is going. And maybe that's a testament to their good skills or I, I don't know, but I don't know what I'm supposed to think at this point. And that's okay. I'll still watch it. I'm going to watch the, the rest of it. Cause it's, it's better than watching the shit show of the news. You know, my cardiologist was <laughs> oh. like, do not watch the news. Do yeah, not. Watch that was, news. that was very, that was very good advice. Um, what I think is interesting is what draws us to what, media at what time like you were you just said this documentary was bringing up certain feelings in you i have really recently been getting really into the donner party oh <laughs> someone was just talking about that yeah 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 man Oof, that was rough that was rough and those people had many did you know that that those people had they were very well to do so basically, they lived in um, Springfield, Illinois, and I think what happened 
is at a certain point, you know, America started getting a lot more inhabitants and people who had been used to having a lot of space to themselves and a lot of land and whatever started having neighbors. And some people didn't like it. And that's what this was before the gold rush. They came out in like 1846 Um, and they had a whole crew. They had like a staff. They brought all of their China and whatever with them. Uh, and there's, and the trip was supposed to take, I guess, maybe like three months going through the Oregon trail, or maybe it was more, more than that. And they were basically stuck there for like a year in the Sierra Nevadas in the, you know, in the winter with no food. Oh God. It's, and I think the reason I'm attracted to that right now is not that I'm stuck without food, but that I, this feeling of like, we don't know when we're going to get out of this. We don't know if anybody's coming to save us. Right. You're trapped. Trapped. It's the trapped thing. Um, Did they, did they not have a good travel agent? I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but did they not have someone, someone saying, well, they, they tried to do a shortcut. They, they believe this guy who was like a snake oil salesman, essentially was selling, uh, a book that purported to have a shortcut. Oh no! And in that situation, Mrs. Donner or whoever she was was like, "I don't know. I don't think this is a good idea. I think we should go." And the husband said, "No, we're going to go this way." And they went that way, and it was bad, 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 bad. Thus bad. begins the lifelong struggle of women to try to tell men, "You're lost. Get directions." It stems from the Absolutely. Donner party. Oh Absolutely. my God. And, they, and did they all end up dead? No, there were several survivors. I I think the entire party started out with 80 people. And I think might be like 11 people survived. Oh my God. One or two of the survivors, I believe, did kill themselves after that, you know, because right. they, right? It's such a trauma. And the guilt and the... And you ate people, yeah. right? They ate each other, right? Yeah. yeah, they ate each other. Well, they didn't eat their own family. That was their code of ethics. They, 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 they did. They divvied up the meat so that this one didn't go to his own or her, her own. Oh my God. Oh, it's so sad. I'm sorry to be laughing. No, but it's, it is. It is. It is a very interesting story. Well, human beings are absurd. You know, like at our core, this the way in which we, when when we whenever we're in a situation where we have to get down to basics, like for our survival, and we just become animals, you're just like I'm a squirrel, I'm a rat, like I'm 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 nothing, you know. Because if you get me tired enough, or hungry enough, or lonely enough, or whatever, like I'm gonna make the same, right? Right? We are. Yep. Mm -hmm. Some people feel comforted by that. I don't. I, I feel like. Yeah, right. No, I feel like that's where you get, yeah, that's where you get freaking, really freaking crazy people going, doing crazy stuff is that they they forget they have a, what is it, an amygdala or whatever. It, it doesn't work out. It, it like goes out the window. And that's when people make really horrible mis- decisions too, you know, yeah, for sure. animalistic decisions. Wow. Yeah, the Donner Party. Uh, but besides that, I am looking for, uh, media recommendations of all sorts. I bought David Sedaris's new book. I don't really like it. Um, I, I My mom got me Barack Obama's book for Christmas, which I do like, but it makes me fall asleep every time I read it. Oh, that's not bad. That could be a good thing. 
Um, yeah, I was going to ask you something. Yeah. I was going to, before I forget. Um, so, you know, I was, I was thinking about the interview that we're going to do and that we have done with people. And we've known that the tricky thing about interviewing people. And I was thinking about this in the shower is that we've known people most of these people we're interviewing and soon one day, you know, we won't know the people and that'll be different, but we've known these people before they've become who they've wanted to become. So it's like a lot of people don't like being reminded of the past and a lot of people know. And a lot of people are very um, cagey about you having information or me having information about them from the past and they're, they weren't who they wanted to be and must have some shame about that and then get weird about it. But I was thinking about that, like that we can't really take that personally because, or I can't, cause I'm, t- I'm apt to, you know, be like, you know, but it's like, when you've seen people at their weirdest, worst, or what they think is their weirdest, worst, you could even think, who cares? I don't give a shit. Um, <laughs> but they, they care and they don't, they don't, they don't like it. Like you, or, or you have well, to dude, that, that, what you just said about they, you don't care or they, but they care that I think that could be applied to almost everything that we as humans feel very, a lot of shame about. Um, it, for the nine, a 99.9% of the time, it's like, it, it's, it's either it's funny now, or it's just not a big deal. I mean, we just accept it. We were, we were 20, we were 19. We made, you know, we talked about amygdalas, our amygdalas, <laughs> you know, we, our brain wasn't done being formed yet. So yeah, I wish, I wish, I, I wish I could give not just our guests, but I guess certainly our guests too, but everybody, I wish I could give everybody the freedom of understanding that your 99% of your deepest shames are just regular things that everybody has to deal with. I remember like about five years ago, I I realized that I was still holding on to embarrassment from so many past things. And so I started making it like a mission to tell these stories to people as much as I possibly could to kind of like reduce the shame around it. And it works like for, uh, let's see here. I have one. If I, you didn't, you don't. I didn't care. Yeah. Yeah. Let's hear. Let's hear. All right. Listen to this story. This is like, and I've told this a couple times, but this is the craziest fucking shit. So at Saturn films, I had before she was fired for gambling online all day. I had one of my bosses, <laughs> She was my, was, they were all my boss. So, but she was my boss and, and her personal calls, she would get a lot of personal calls. This was like pre kind of pre self right around cell phone time. Right. Her mother would call a lot and I would, my job was to take a message. You know, if she didn't want to talk to her mom, couldn't talk to her mom. Okay. So one day, this is crazy. One day her mother calls. And I forgot. And at the time we had something called the call tracker and you enter the call and they probably still have it, enter the thing. And then you press, and then it's in there. And then the person sees their messages. All right. I didn't do that. I made a mistake. I made a mistake. She, she's like, Hey, did my mom call? She said she called. And I, and she was so angry that I said, no, she didn't call. She called, she called. And I said, no, she didn't call. And she's like, are you sure? 
Because she said she talked to someone. I'm like, she didn't talk to me. It got bigger and bigger. It became like an investigation. Then she's like, well, maybe she talked to Kelly, this other person in the office. And Kelly's like, no, she didn't talk to me. And the deeper in I got, Beans, the more more I was like, I can't tell her because I can't tell her she's going to, it was more than firing. It was this shame level that was so great. And the mom, like she wanted to hear voice comparisons from like me and Kelly to see Wait, why were they taking it so seriously? Because I think they wanted to prove that one of us was lying and I never told her. I just, she goes, okay, well, and it was this huge thing and I felt so much shame and it was so embarrassing and it was so, and I should have just said, yeah, she called. I'm sorry. That's, I mean, but the more it happened, the more dug in I got about, oh my God, when, when they wanted, when I had to go, oh God. Anyway, but dude, this this is exactly speaking to this phenomenon that you I that you have given the gift of to me, which I love so much, which is that we're always having a, an emotional flashback whenever something is high stakes, because what what the thing that rings out to me about that story is that that woman had a lot of guilty feelings about whether or not she wanted to talk to her mom, and she was projecting it onto you. The whole desire to scapegoat you had a lot more to do with her wanting to say to her, and I, I know I'm making this up, but I feel like it's, it must be true. true. Um, that she doesn't want to have to say to her mom, you know, don't, don't call me every day at work. Like I, I have gambling to do. <laughs> right. But I know what or you that, mean. Or that she was ashamed that she was spending all of her time at work wasting so she had to yeah dude so like she's got her thing the mother's fighting for it for her reason you're fighting for it it's like none of it has anything to do with the freaking call tracker none of them has to do with the call tracker but i was so embarrassed about that for years that i then my response if i at a work situation would just be to take the blame for everything they'd be like who broke the dishwasher i did they'd be like you weren't here even what are you talking about who did that? I did I did it I made a mistake and they're like no you actually this wasn't your and then yeah I overcompensated by saying I'll do it I I, I I fucked up I think I really or to go to someone to be like I think I really fucked this up I didn't do this and they're like no it's not that big of a deal but yeah but- that's that that is a very good policy like just immediately or if possible let them know before they ask you <laughs> That you made a mistake that, you know, because it's always forgivable at that level. It's just not forgivable when it gets. It got crazy. It got crazy. It was like, I was like, this is going to be, I I don't know what is happening here, but this is out of control. And Kelly and I had to get on the phone with her mom and say, Saturn film. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, that's, that's disgusting that they she made was, you do that. She was, she was a nightmare. I mean, she got fired and it, she did some other weird things, but you know, it was, it was Hollywood and she, like we said, she was dealing with some weird shit. I love stories about how people like fucked off their job and embezzled money and did like all kinds of crazy things for years and years and nobody found out about it. My mother worked for a big, big organization and the um, the head honcho had a secretary who was very officious. Like she was always telling everybody like, that's against the rules and we don't do that here. Yeah. And she found, they found out that like she had been um, embezzling money for like 15 years to the tune of multiple millions of dollars. 
I mean, and she got caught and I think she might have gone to jail, but like it went on for 15. So anyway, another thing, another public service announcement. When somebody is, you know, like a little extra behavior, it's it's also a flag. Yeah, it's a so flag. And, you know, my first job was at Benison's Bakery in Evanston and, um, and I had a coworker that was on me all the time about my math. And she knew that I was like, and it was before they made change for you. And you had to make change in your head at the cash register. It was old school cash register. She was always on me and always on me and always on me and just really rude. And, and like, and it tur- they caught her one day, literally taking the whole drawers out of the thing, out, out the back door. <laughs> God, yeah. didn't even just take the bills out. Took the, the whole drawer. drawers. They caught her with the drawers. I was like, okay. See, so you're right. If someone is like on your ass, like ridiculously, or uh, talking about the rules all the time, you got to think there is something going on with this person. Yes. So yeah. Yeah. So so yes, and then so the other piece of advice is things that are that you're holding in your heart as shameful. Try saying them even just to yourself out loud because right. they're probably funny by now. Yeah. You know, me like spitting out my retainer. <laughs> to, I was, uh, my, mine is that my okay. first biggest, my first big shame that I carried around for a long time, which was completely unnecessary, was in seventh grade and I had a crush on this boy and it was recess. And you know how in junior high, like recess, you just, you don't play necessarily. You stand around in a circle and talk to your friends standing in a circle talking to my friends trying to impress this boy there's maybe like six of us and I told or I either I told a joke or somebody did and I was laughing and I threw my head back and left and my retainer <laughs> shot out of my mouth and hit this boy I loved on the forehead my oh, dirty ass wow. retainer <laughs> yes that's fantastic and did you want to die ask me when I was Oh, I wanted to die. And and if you had asked me when I was 20, if somebody had brought that story up when I was 20 years old, I, I would have wanted to die of embarrassment all over again. And I don't remember when I first, you know, realized that this story was actually funny. Pretty funny. But it was like, it was like a gateway to telling all of my, you know, embarrassing that's a great story. And now it's like, for me, I hear that. And I'm like, oh, that's going to happen to Kiki. That's going to happen yeah. to Kiki. going to do that. Yeah. To a boy yeah. she likes. And I told I told on this podcast on the Pat Belton episode I told the story about that was embarrassing about him and the member that would you guys dance if I put this you were, like, you were like oh we're gonna do a show we're gonna do a show for, I've I've had I this mean, same I, thing I might as well have been I, I might as well have thought I was being asked to be a solid gold dancer in that moment <laughs> you were like the queen they, you they were being at, at, you were getting a recording Today on the show, we have Lee Kirk. Lee Kirk is a writer. He's also a performer and a director. He is known for um, The Giant Mechanical Man, which is a film that he wrote and directed and started with his wife. I'm not sure if they were married at the time. Jenna Fisher from The Office, which is very near and dear to my heart. And anyway, he's a lovely gentlemen. We had such a great time chatting with him. And I think you will find him 
just as charming as we do. So please enjoy our interview with Lee Kirk. I've taken it over now. This is mine. Yeah. Anyway, congratulations. You survived theater school. I did. I did. I guess I did. I mean, I'm here to of talk about it. Of course you did. So. Of course you did. You live to tell the tale. And so, like, did you always know you were going to go to theater school? No, actually, I, um, I, my first year of college, I went to University of Arizona because my girlfriend went there and I just was so smitten that I followed her out there and, and went there for a year. And after that, after about six months, I was like, what am I doing here? I think I need to go to, you know, some sort of theater school. So I went back home and I, and I, you know, saved money and I auditioned for schools. And my criteria was basically, I wanted to go to a school that had a, um, that was in an old city. So like a New York or a Boston, Chicago, that was the one criteria. And I, and I'm assuming the other criteria was just like, they had to have a really good picture in the American theater magazine, because I think, (laughs) I think that's how I ended up choosing the schools. You know what I mean? I just flipped through and be like, Hey, look at that guy. He's, He's oh, like dressed so in an old timey Ibsen costume. And, that's amazing. And I, I want that, you know. I mean, I, I I'm assuming that's what I did because I have no clue why I ended up auditioning for for DePaul, or I auditioned for Boston University and NYU, and I think it was just because they looked glossy and fun, you know. Oh my God, we've talked about this being so. We talked to John Bridges about it. We talked to um, other people, people who said have said advertising. The marketing for DePaul Theater School was fantastic. It worked. It worked for me, you know. So you're from Texas, right? I'm from Dallas, yeah. Oh, you're from Dallas. And did you, did those schools come to Dallas for your audition or did you have to go someplace else? No, I had to go. So I went to, I went to to Boston and and, and NY and New York for those auditions. And, um, and then I went to um, New Orleans for DePaul, um, which was, kind of odd i'd never Weird. been to chicago and and so you know i went i went to new orleans and it was john bridges and um joe slowick were, were, were the guys doing holding the auditions mm-hmm. and i remember <laughs> i remember i pretty much shit in the bed in my audition because <laughs> because I, I i remember as i was walking out like i finished my monologue or whatever and I, it clearly didn't you know wow them so as i was walking out i was like oh shit man i need to I need a last ditch effort here. So I just stopped and I said, Hey, can I just say something? And Bridges was like, sure. What's up? And I said, I, I just really liked DePaul and I just really hope, you know, to go there and, and, <laughs> and thanks for the opportunity. And so I walked out going, Oh no. And about, and then I got in. Right. So then later I, um, I was talking, uh, talking to John when I was in the school and for some reason auditions were coming, came up and I, and I asked him about how was my audition? He says, I don't know. I just remember you, you seem to really want to go there. So go here. So we said, let's give this kid a shot, I guess. No, it worked. Begging worked is the, is the moral of the story on that one. Well, it may have worked, but my recollection. And so of course, you know, we want to hear your recollection, but my recollection is that you were like a fantastic actor. Everything you did was wow. like you're yeah. at, at for effortless. I, that's what I remember about you is like, you made it all look very easy. Yep. <laughs> that uh, that is a, a high compliment from you guys and it's astounding honestly 100% astounding to hear that because I felt like I was just always treading water. Wow. Oh, man. And I and I and and acting for me felt very hard like it felt like I had to work really hard to kind of 
get into the zone of, of whatever the character was. And, and I think a lot of that was just, there was so many things where we were thinking about, we're thinking about our movement, our voice, our posture, our what's beyond our filter that we're using, you know, mm. our intention. And so like, it was hard. It was hard to just get into the place of just like, ah, creativity. Let's just let mm. this flow. So thank you for saying that, you know, I, yeah, I appreciate it, I but, mean... but it was, um, I didn't find, I found it, I found it difficult. I found it difficult, you know. To... I, I remember that you were the nicest guy of the cool kids. Does yeah. that make sense? <laughs> like the, the, all the people that you hung with, I was so intimidated, but you were so nice to me that I was like, that guy's really nice. And I'm telling you, that goes a long way when you're 17 and have no self-esteem. So like, that's uh, awesome. Well, I'm glad to hear that. That's cool. I, I remember here's a here's a story. I remember Phyllis Griffin. I think thought the same thing because her um, her stepdaughter. I think when I was a junior, her stepdaughter was in high school. She was a senior, and she was had no one to go to the prom. And so Phyllis said, Will "You take her to the prom, Lee." Aww. And I was like, "Okay, you know." And so I, oh, I said, I'm gonna sure. cry. So I so I I like went to the high school prom when I was like. 22 years old or something like that with phyllis's uh stepdaughter <laughs> oh that is so endearing and yes that's high praise i'm sure phyllis would not have trusted just anybody with that that's amazing was, yeah I, I yeah so we have talked about phyllis a lot as a champion like she she's one of the people who and, and actually, unfortunately, it ends up being kind of like a lot of the female teachers were the ones doing the emotional labor of supporting the students. And she, she was one of those people. I never had her as a teacher, but I could certainly see her as a champion. Would you consider her one of your theater school champions? Well, let's see. First year, I, I, knew, you know, I was in her class and I knew her well. And I remember the first what, what would we call it? Quarters? We're on quarters, trimester. I don't know what the hell we were on over I there, but the first, first three, four months, whatever they were, whatever we call those. I, um, I was just like, not feeling it there. I was like very, I felt like a fish out of water and it was such a culture shock to me. And I just was not, and I wasn't getting the acting. I wasn't getting the whole thing. Um, so I did talk to Phyllis then. And I remember she said like, you know, she kind of talked me back from the ledge, like, it takes a while to feel like you're, you know, belong somewhere. Um, but really late in later years, it was, it was the Feldenkrais teachers like Bill Burnett was like a huge influence on me because he saw that uh, I was, a, I was slouching a lot, I guess. And so he did like table work with me once a week and it was profound. Like that, that, that changed um, so much of my perspective on things like all, all the, all the movement work, from the school and uh, the, you know, the yoga and the Feldenkrais and, and um, the voice work, all that stuff was great. I, I do have a confession. I'll say I never got movement to music. I tried to get that. <laughs> I pretended like I did <laughs> like John Jenkins would bring Steven Davis in and be like, this is how you do it. I would watch him. I'd be like, okay, I can do that. And I get out there and I'd be just, just impulse like crazy moving around and I Jenkins would be like shaking his head like no I'd be like god I can't do this you know what I think you're not alone there my friend and also we've had stories of people that came went to that class on mushrooms uh, was, I, think, I should have done that and they yeah. they aced it so you <laughs> so, so you know. sobriety was your problem not yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> so uh you mentioned uh, 
all of that, that wonderful list, uh, keeping an intention, having a filter, where have I come from? Where am I going to? And that I felt that too, there was so much about acting, about learning acting. Cause I don't feel I really ever started learning acting and if I did at all, uh, until I went to the theater school, even though I had been doing it since, you know, junior high. Um, but for me, the biggest trap was just getting caught in my head because I'm thinking about all of those things that you mentioned. And I also perceive you to be a thinker. So would it be fair to say that that was like a, an obstacle for you? Oh, I, I would think absolutely. Yeah, I was not this like tactile, you know, actor who, who could just be raw and just bring it. I, I was, you know, m much more in my head. And so I really had to think my ways into the character. I mean, I remember my, I guess it was my intro, I think it was, um, maybe it was my first workshop. I can't remember, but it was um, Round Around the Garden. It was a uh, uh, Alan Eichborn play. And um, I was playing this role and, and I, I was not getting it. I was just like not getting this character and it was not working. And then Bill Burnett said to me, play this guy like he just has a lot of, he's always thinking. He's always thinking, like he's always trying to think of the right thing to say. And when he said that to me, I was like, well, how do I interpret that? And I decided to use the filter of, I don't understand people. Like I just started to look at all the other characters and just play the scene as if I don't understand anything. And that just unlocked something and it came to life. Like I remember doing it in like the dress rehearsal and being like, holy shit, it's, I'm doing, I'm in this thing. I'm feeling this character. I'm doing the whole thing. And, and it worked. And unfortunately, that was probably the highest moment of my acting <laughs> at the theater school because I kept at trying to replicate that every time and I could never, you know, replicate it. But, you know, it's like, look, I, I was 21 or something, 22 playing. Okay, I remember playing Father Jack in Dancing at Lunasa, right? right? Okay, this guy's like in his, he's like 55, I guess, and he has malaria. I had no connection. I had, no I had no connection to that. So I played him like a shuffling old man. I played him like he was 85, 90 years old, wheezing and coughing and all this. And I remember one day Phyllis said to me, You realize he's like 55, right? <laughs> She's like, he's like my age almost. So yes. And I had no use for that. I was like, I don't know how to play 50. How do I play 55? Like right. all I can do right. is either old guy. Or young guy so i'm playing old guy right now you know <laughs> right that's hilarious yeah yeah so anyway uh so okay so one of the things that occurs to me about that whole thing because i think maybe the three of us can relate to getting stuck in our heads but we're also all three writers and of course that's what you know i mean like of course that would be your default position so when mm -hmm. did you no, when you were at the theater school that you were also a writer? No, I had no, no clue. That came much later. That came from desperation, basically, because, um, well, I'll say this. First of all, I did write something at the theater school. I wrote my, my monologue for my showcase, oh. which was an absolute shit show. Okay. Oh. This monologue was terrible and it was, it was awful. Like my showcases were a bomb. Okay. Oh. But well, we can get to that, but, but, um, <laughs> I didn't know how to write, right? So the writing came later when I was in LA doing the occasional beer commercial, sitting around waiting for a job and realized, well, dude, I can sit here while I'm sitting here. I can write. Like you can't act in your living room, obviously, because no one's there. If no one's there to watch you, it doesn't make sense. 
but you can write in your living room alone. And actually you have to write alone in your living room. So I was like, Hey, I'm going to try this. And so that was when that whole part of my, my, my life began when I just started writing um, to, to write, basically to write myself an acting role, which then just doors open. And as you know, I just followed through, you know, if a door opened, I went through it and that just turned into a whole new career for me. So did you start, uh, I mean, getting work as a writer at that t same time, or did that so, take longer? Well, I'll tell you the stories. What happened? So I, so John Cabrera and I were living together and um, we both put 2,500 bucks into this new, the new camera. It's called the Panasonic DVX 100 or whatever it was. $2,500 was everything to me. Like I put 2,500 bucks and that was a ton. I was only like teaching acting at that point And I was doing the occasional commercial. Right. So that was a huge investment. So we bought it. We played with it. We were like, this is amazing. Look at the image of this thing. And then it just sat there. And I was like, well, shit, man, I spent 2,500 bucks. I'm gonna try to write something for this. So I sat down and I wrote this short, which it's, it was called the man who invented the moon. I think it, John's got it on his, um, on his Vimeo page. I think if anybody wants to look at it, but, but I, I, I started reading a bunch of books screenwriting. I, I found this one guy, John Truby, who, who taught a, a scene, a story structure that just completely resonated with me. And I just plugged that in. I plugged his structure into my story and it just, it worked. And I just felt so empowered all of a sudden, like, wow, look at this, man. I've been sitting here for years, like just trying to fit like a square peg into a round hole. And now it's fits. And so I just decided to keep writing then. I was like, I went to theater school for four years. I don't want to now go to creative writing school or film school or something. I'm just going to learn by doing, right? So I just started writing as much as I could. And then, and then it would turn into um, occasional job, but also it just turned into more, more than anything, it turned into me sort of finding what I like to write about and finding my, my sort of voice, you know, and led me to making some movies and stuff like that. Do you think that, I mean, because I, I also think that people get attracted to an aspect of something, like it, it could be that you're attracted to acting because acting is the only thing that's presented to you when what you really like is performance of all types or what you really like is storytelling of all types. So would that be true for you that, that acting was your in to what you really needed to get to which is this essential part of you that as that's a honestly not really i mean the reason i was right i had to write is because i couldn't get a job as an actor i couldn't audition i sucked at auditioning i, I will oh. say right now i bet i hold the the record for the worst oh, I, I, bet you, I, I would like to, to oh. really do a run for i slated as ben josworth instead of jen bosworth <laughs> at a big audition <laughs> oh i've got some doozies we can talk we can okay but but you know i didn't and and this goes back to the theater school um man there was so many great things that i learned at that school and so many great teachers and and uh and but i felt like and i didn't realize this till years later but i feel like there was an ingredient that just got left out and that was me, basically. I learned everything about my body and how to break it all down and how it all works. But when it came to filling it up then with me and my specificity of who I am, that just got lost. And so, um, and so I got out into the world and I just like, I was, a, I was not getting work. I just couldn't audition well. I could not walk into a room and just like bring it, right? So 
because of that, I started writing, you know, and I enjoyed finally doing something creatively. But to be honest with you, I would love to be acting right now. I mean, I like what I do, but I also miss acting tremendously, you know, especially theater, you know, acting on the stage. Do you ever like, I mean, do you audition for things or you just let it go? I, I can't do the audition. That's the thing. So maybe I'll try again, but I just kind of feel like, you know what? Maybe that will come back around sometime, but I don't want to get back into like getting a headshot and like going on a meeting. I just, I, I, that just never felt right for me. So I'm kind of holding. Very, very all. tough. That's a very tough part of doing all of this. Yeah, it's tough. That's why I just, yeah. And I'm like, oh, no problem. I'll just write something for Lee. That's a pretty easy. We'll oh, write something good. for you. Sign yeah. me up. We'll put yeah. you on a thing. I mean, I am in. auditioning is not acting to me. It, it is a part of the business of, of making dollars as an actor. But yes. I know so many people that are like that, that just there. And Gina and I talk a lot about confidence, right? And the confidence at being, um, easy to say, a trickier to manifest than anything on the planet. And that's not acting, but it's part of the business. And so I just want to let you know that, that like I talking to so many people and being an actor myself and a writer, um, I just, and the therapist in me, my former therapist self wants me to, to say to you that you are a good actor and that auditioning <laughs> is not your strong suit. That's, no, thank you. That's it. Well, it, it really yeah. is true that the audition is a very specific skill. And, um, and I, I, I do wish at the theater school that there was a lot more attention paid to that and a lot more, you know, more of a philosophy or a strategy about what it is. And um, it's funny because we did audition all the time, right? We were always auditioning for plays, but within that bubble, it's very different. You know, it's, it's a whole different thing when you get out into the, in, into the world. And, and, you know, and I see it as a director when I'm auditioning and, and you can see it's very clear. Like this is when it really became clear to me because you can have an actor walk in and they, they're, they're who they are. They have their own rhythm, their own way of speech, their way they're, they're, this, their thing, they're who they are. Right. And then you say, okay, action. And then that, that person does not disappear. They begin their audition and you still see that person right and it's compelling that's when you go oh that's this person's doing it the the, the way that only they would do it it's specific mm -hmm. to them whereas if you have someone come in you say okay action and then they suddenly they become acting and they're doing a character immediately it's false right mm -hmm. i was always the guy who was doing the character right i was never the guy who just was like okay here i am and then i'm just going to slightly adjust and I'm still me just giving you this performance you know so and I, I that's just a weird thing and it's a specific thing and I feel like there's a way to teach that I wish it was taught yeah you know? and it just it did just get like shoehorned at the end in the you know in the fourth year it was like okay hurry up and learn how to first of all hurry up and transform all of your thinking from theater into film and television mm -hmm. and it really blindsided me. I, I didn't really see that coming. I should have, but I didn't see it coming. And and then, yeah, and then you had, a, a, I feel like audition class was also one, was it once a week? Yeah, yeah. it wasn't, it, it was once a week. Yeah. It was once a week. So you did once a week for whatever, like not that many weeks, not enough weeks. No, not enough. Come out not of it enough. and be a confident auditioner for sure. No, and I think, I don't know what they're doing at the school now, but I feel like they should really be, um, take some time, think about 
that think about the audition and, and get someone in there who can really teach it because there are people who teach it. They're out in LA and, um, and it, it's, it's, it's makes a huge difference. It really makes a difference. And, and it's like you were saying, Jen, it's a different thing than acting, you know, it kind of goes to what you were saying, Gina, about me, I'm very thought intellectual, right? So I can't just, I can't just be a character, right? Which is always my fault with the audition because it, you get a thing, it's three days later, next day, you got to go in and just do this thing. And I needed, I always needed the whole rehearsal process in order to get there. Right. And yeah. so walking in and just showing it up and getting there, I, I just, but there's a way to do it, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's a knowable way. It's, it's not, it's, I mean, it's a mystery to me, but it's not a mystery to people who know, <laughs> know <laughs> how to too. do it. Yeah. Go ahead, Buzz. You can say I was just going to ask you um, about your um, process of, you, you talked a little bit about the showcase process for you. And I, mm -hmm. I mean, I know it could be, it can be cringeworthy and painful, but um, what was that experience? Cause we've, I, it's just so fascinating because that was our coming out into the world. Mine wasn't so great either. I did a monologue that I should never have been doing. That was like a 60 year old lady. I mean, it was a mess, mm -hmm. but um, so what was that experience like for you going to, did you go to New York or just LA and Chicago? I can't okay, remember. Okay. So, so we just did LA and Chicago and um, well, okay. So in my fourth year, I got an agent before I graduated. Okay. So, um, and Jane Alderman said, I got an a someone you can meet. I met this guy. And I, so I had an agent. I think that that wasn't good for me because I think that's part of the reason I sort of blew off the showcase a little bit. I was like, I'll just write my own monologue. I already got an agent anyway. I'm not moving to LA. I'm going to be in Chicago. So, so, I, I didn't consciously think that, but I just think the fire wasn't there. I wasn't feeling like, oh man, this is my moment. And so I did the Chicago one and then we went to LA and when we went to LA and I stood up and I did my terrible monologue, I immediately, after I finished, I was like, oh shit. I feel like I just really made a huge mistake. And I felt terrible because you know, it's like you're leading this. I felt like we're leading up to this four years of doing this. It's all leads up to this. And I felt like, oh man, I just, I just lost my chance, you know? And, um, and I kind of did in a way, I mean, I didn't get any, I got a few little things, but I didn't get any attention from that showcase. And, and so um, going, looking back, I would have obviously done all much differently, but um, so it wasn't great, but it's funny. I don't know what the showcase is like now. I don't know what, if they're doing the same thing, but if they're not, I do feel like the LA showcase, it, it needs to be reinvented a little bit because, you know, I don't know, you got all these film and TV people, you bring them into a theater and you stand up and do a monologue, but there's a screening room like next door, like create a, create a, 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 a reel, you know, create, take those monologues, get a camera and a cinematographer or something that looks very nice and just spend a day shooting everybody doing their monologue and then bring everybody to a screening room and play them on the big screen and let people see them act in the medium that these people are used to seeing people act in. Right. That's, that's, that's brilliant. I never thought of that's brilliant. And also they could watch it at their leisure. They don't all have to go to, you can, but it's also mm -hmm. so much easier to send that to people via email than making or asking film and TV people to watch 20 monologues on film, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Which is what they do. They did this year because of COVID. And I just thought oh, if sure. I'm the casting director watching 20 monologues times, <laughs> however many schools versus watching scenes 
like from either from stuff that exists or stuff that doesn't exist i mean that could be a whole i'm just saying lee it's time to get on get on the horn to whoever's running the show well listen i've learned from from years in la that you it's helpful if you do most of the heavy lifting for for people who are behind the other side of the desk right if you do most of the lifting for them then they'll get it but if you ask them to meet you halfway or, or to do, you know, more of the lifting, it's not usually a good, a good uh, outcome, but listen, yeah. the showcases work. It's not like it hasn't worked. I mean, many people did well in the showcase. So that might just be me saying, you know, my own regrets. Well, so, but. but you said you blew it off because you had an agent, but I, I, I gathered that the rest of that story was, and then it didn't go that great with that agent. Right. Yeah. No, I didn't go back. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I did some auditions, but you know, like I couldn't audition. I mean, it just goes back to my own thing is that I just could not mm-hmm. find it, find my comfort in the audition. So I got, a, I got a little work in Chicago from, from that, but not very much, you know. What was months. the piece that you wrote for yourself? I mean, I know you said it was terrible, but what was it about? Oh gosh. It was about, I think it was, I don't, I, I hardly remember. I think it was about a guy who was heartbroken or something. And, but it was, I mean, I'm telling you guys, it was horrible. It was, it was, okay. I, I'm surprised that, that Jane Alderman was like, yeah, do that. That's well, good. <laughs> that's what we, we've talked about this before where it's like that we didn't have, we didn't have someone saying, um, Hey, this may not be the best fit. So like, let me work with you to find something, you know, it was sort of like, and, 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 you know, in fairness, John Bridges said that like people were like, I have to do this, but we were kids. I mean, we were almost kids, basically. We were almost kids. And so it's like, it's like, we should have had some guidance of like, no, 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 don't do. I mean, the stuff we're hearing people did for their showcase was insane. Some of it playing yeah. paraplegics or whatever. I mean, whatever that was. And so oh um, I'm just saying, I bet it's not as, I, I bet it wasn't just the right, I best, bet it didn't showcase you the right way. That's all I'm saying. And 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 look, we were kids, man. But it's supposed to do. Mm. That's exactly what it was supposed to. I mean, that's the, the promise of the premise there is you are going to be seeing people really at their best with the material that's right for them and, and, you know, uh, almost to a person that we've talked to, people felt that it was age inappropriate or, or, or it was just inappropriate in the sense that you're auditioning with a piece that's not a role you would ever get cast for, right? So like the mm-hmm. bare minimum requirement should be, <laughs> I evaluate you, I see, okay, Lee, you're, you're a good looking guy, you got blonde hair, you got the slight Southern accent, okay, this is the kind of role that you're, you're going to get cast in a Sam Shepard something. Mm-hmm. And so that's the piece that you should use. Right. I don't remember any of that. Well, I don't remember the piece I did at all. I have literally zero recollection of it, but I'm certain it wasn't anything related to like me and what I would have gotten cast as. Right. Right. right, right and so right. now Gina, Gina and I both write monologues for people because I, I saw that hole and I thought, okay, this is bonkers that, that we're expecting people to get cast in film and TV and having them do these monologues from burn this from 1989 or, or Oleana or something that's not okay anymore. So I think, I think it's changing, but slowly. And I think, um, anyway, we could have benefited from a little bit more of the, the help 
making the transition into into um film and tv world so i i just i don't know i have so much compassion for us i just look back and i'm like man we really tried and and i don't know you seem to have a good memory lee of the shows you did like do you remember mm. the show the dumb waiter that you did oh yeah of course yeah okay so for people obviously it's, it's a unesco show right gina no it's a pinter pinter okay yeah pinter so you guys took the ceiling off of the movement room and had some kind of pulley situation going. Do you remember well, that? That was a little sleight of hand. It made it look like we took oh. the ceiling off. We actually didn't, but that was, yeah, that was, so Sean directed that. It was Val and, and myself. And uh, that was fun. That was cool. And we actually read it. So. Wait, so, Sean you know, Gunn directed a, a workshop? No, no, this is just with something we did on our own. We were like, we want to oh. do the dumbwaiter. So we're just okay. going to put on a production of the dumbwaiter. That's cool. I, yeah, I don't know how we found the time for that. I mean, where, where did we find the time to do that? What? Lord knows. Yeah. Well, because um, you, weren't, you weren't working on your, you weren't working very hard on your showcase. So you had plenty of time. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I don't need to do the showcase. Let's do the dumbwaiter, guys. <laughs> it was good. That was a good show. Oh, that's so cool. You say that. So, yeah. So we did that. And then when we graduated um we formed a little theater company um do you guys know that the chopin cafe and yes of course okay so we met up with the the owner of that building and he was like the cafe at that time was empty and he was like listen and the theater and by the way the theater in the basement there was a big theater next door but there was a theater in the basement was Mm -hmm. beautiful coolest space and we were like okay listen we will run we will open up this coffee shop and run this coffee shop. We will open a business if then we can use that space downstairs to put on shows. And he was like, deal, because he wanted that coffee shop. He just wanted the traffic, right? So we were like, okay, cool. So for like our graduation presents, we all got like some money from our parents and we like opened a coffee shop. Like I'm talking like met with like coffee distributors and, and coffee cup distributors, all this kind of stuff literally opened a coffee shop like every morning at 7 a.m sweeping out the shop it was like nate biddick and myself and and sean gunn and um who else was involved in and that? john right was this collaboration no it wasn't collaboration oh. but john, like there was other people involved like sarah charper and anna kind of make we were all kind of involved in this thing so um so we did three so we did let's see we did a show called the hot house pinter play down in that basement we did uh cloud nine carol churchill down in the basement and then we also did this is the dumbwaiter reference we did that um play as well but we didn't do it there but we did it as a part of this little theater group we did it in a, in a festival um what we found is that we had no business running a coffee shop because we just literally like our capital just slowly disappeared until we had normal money and we were like i guess we're shutting the coffee shop and that was the end of that little era but it was about it was about nine months maybe a year of of just like doing theater and trying to sell coffee you know that was our that was our first thing we did when we got out of out of school god the the unending um ambition and 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 wishful thinking or better way to say it was optimism of young people. I mean, it's both the thing, cause it could have gone either way. It could have totally taken off and it could have changed the course of all of the, the people's lives who are, who are part of it. So on the one hand, you don't, if you don't have that, then you have people who never take any risks cause they never, they, they find a way to always convince themselves that something won't work. Um, but it's, 
cute to think back to that time because we did that too. Uh, Eric Slater and and um, Russell and and John. Wait, was John? I forget. I'm sorry, John. I forget if you were a part of this or not. But anyway, we did that too. We formed a little theater company and. Yeah. I think it also you I personally needed that I needed that transition out of the theater school in a way to prove to myself that I can still I mean not that anything became of that but I can still do this outside of the confines of the theater mm -hmm. school itself it it turned out to be a really instrumental thing so so then so you graduated and you stayed in Chicago for a bit and then you just moved for to like LA. a year just we did this theater thing for about a year and i stayed for that long and then sean had moved to la um he got like a movie and he went to la and he was like dude you need to move out here and um and so I, at that point i was like nothing was really happening for me uh i still had the agent but like it wasn't really going anywhere and and i just kind of felt like uh i just felt like i needed a change so i moved out to la and, um, you know, and then struggled out there for, for a long time, you know, um, but, but it was cool. Like, it, it was cool. Like, I don't, I don't regret it. You know, I missed Chicago tremendously and I still miss, miss Chicago. You know, there's just something about that city that, that is, is really, um, it's always going to be with me. It was a really formative time in my life. Like that, that time of the theater school was super important for me. And, uh, and, and part of it was just being in Chicago, just being in this really cool city that was nothing like the suburbs of dallas you right know? yeah no, definitely there's no comparison no did you uh lee did you get warned or were you one of those people that never was on warning never worried about being cut surprisingly the i never got a warning i don't know how that happened <laughs> i can remember some things i did <laughs> that merited a was very strong warning Okay. But for some reason it never came. I always expected it, but you know what? Here's the, th I have a question for you guys. Did you know that there was a cut system when you applied and went to DePaul? I, I didn't either. So I remember oh. showing up first day. Oh. It was like a meeting. Like there was a meeting, yep. like it was like a get together, like everybody come together and, you know, and, and meet and greet kind of thing before the first day of school. And so I go to that and everyone's talking about the cut system and there's a quota you know they and and i was like what there's a i could get cut i i i've gone through so much to get to this school from like leaving my other university of arizona taking a year off finally getting my ass here and you're telling me it might last one year i was like terrified by that yeah. you know me too i it was a complete me surprise too. to me too i mean it was yeah i and i remember telling my mom that and she was like uh, that is that is that allowed is that apparently apparently that's what they do here and yeah. it was very and it and it created I mean I guess you're saying that the the students were the ones who were talking about that but but it it did create this um pall over the first year experience of it just felt very tenuous all, all yeah. the time we did learn from John Bridges that it, there was no quota that when they admitted a class of students, they, you know, to themselves, basically viewed it as a promise that if all of those students did well, they could all advance through the whole four years. Mm. But 
coincidentally that never happened and always shrunk by 50%. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to know what's, what's the, what I know it's not like that now, but when we went, I can definitely say, and, and the thing is, I didn't, you know, to be honest, I didn't bring this up with John, but I was cut and then not cut. So I was cut after my second year. And then a month oh, wow. later got a letter saying, actually, we made a mistake. I don't know but it was the worst because I was like, oh, I guess I'll go to University of Madison now or whatever it is I was going to do. And yeah. then they're like, actually, we want you back. So they, they had some problem areas. Let's just call it what it is. I mean, they had some problem areas. Yeah, uh, that's that's bizarre. That's that's a lot to put you through. Yeah. You know, cut, you know, what? come on back. Oh, great. You guys really want me. <laughs> <laughs> it was really strange. I can't wait. It was really strange. But so can you can you tell us, are you directing? What are you what's happening? Are you I want to hear about good things that are happening for some reason. Sure. So well, the same way that I just, you know, with writing, if a door opened, I went through it. The same thing happened with directing. So um, I yeah, I, I'm directing. I've directed a few, you know, a, a couple of films and little TV and music videos, stuff like that. But um, but that's the same thing. Like I had this movie um, that uh it's called the giant mechanical man that I had I had written back in 2008 or nine or something. And actually that movie was, a, was kind of based on what we're talking about in terms of Chicago and just how, you know, so one thing I missed about Chicago so much, and I still miss is, is I, I love the, the people who there, the artists, the theater artists who like are, are content to do great theater. They come up with really cool shit and they're content to do it for a room full of, you know, 50 people night after night and continue to do great stuff. And I just, I, when you're in LA and, and you don't see that, it, it, it meant a lot to me, you know? I, mean, I, remember, I remember a play that John Cabrera told me about that was, it was, a, it was a car. You would get in the car as the audience member, get in the back seat of the car and the two actors were in the front seat of the car and then they would drive around and they do the play as they're driving, they're having a conversation and you're just watching this. Now that is so cool, right? That's that awesome. That is so cool. That's awesome. So I wrote this movie that was basically, I took that idea and I was like, what if it's just one person is the only person who gets your art? And that was this movie called The Giant Mechanical Man. Anyway, that's just a segue about Chicago. But um, I, um, what was I saying? Oh yeah, so that movie, we had uh, Jason Siegel attached. It was going to be made for, you know, like, who knows, five to $10 million. And we had this British director and then the financial crisis hit and it all went away. And um, Chris Messina uh, had read it and, and, and had, a, had a meeting with him. And he was like, dude, you should just direct this movie. Let's make it for nothing. And you direct it. And again, it was one of those moments where it was like, okay, I, I'm going to just step up here and just, I've never directed anything before, but I'm just going to go for it, you know, and, um, and learn as I do you know and but be honest the the all of the training i had at, at the theater school was instrumental in me being comfortable as a director you know i just focused on the actors i just talked to the actors made them feel comfortable and um let the cinematographer deal with lenses and all that kind of stuff and that it was a really easy fit for me and that would not have happened without the theater school and, and the writing wouldn't have happened. You know, the, the ability to write sort of dialogue and structure out a scene hundred percent came from just doing it so many times at the theater school, doing so many different scenes and thinking about, thinking about all the things that we talked about, what's beyond or what the, you know, what, what's, um, what's the, uh, again, like the filter of this character. And, you know, it was, so it all came full circle in just a weird way, 
Yeah. And that's, I think that's what it does for almost everybody. And just to what you're saying about directing and attending to the actors, to me, that's when I'm, because I direct too for theater, it's 100% of the job is attending to your actors. And which is why I never understood um, people like Woody Allen, who I guess they never ever talk to the actor. They just, they figure that, you know, if they cast you that, you know, they feel you're really capable of doing it. And so, I mean that sounds bizarro to me. I would I would really 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 hate that. That 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 sounds like a a recipe because you know we're all just so insecure and we just all really want somebody to say you know periodically frequently you're doing good. Yeah, it's that's okay. Good. Yeah. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Keep, uh, no kidding. I mean that's it's I mean and I think that that understanding of an actor like we all have that because we've been through it and we are right we are actors and and so that understanding of like what it takes um personally to put yourself mm-hmm. on the line to be the one that the camera's pointing at and you got to deliver oh, it's a boy. lot it's a lot you know and um and so yeah to, to to understand that from the other side of the camera to be able to say hey man good i mean you're 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 nailing it you're you got it you know Oh, that sounds great. You're an actor's director, which is fantastic. We need it's, more of those. It's where we, I feel comfortable. You know, it's like, it's just what I latch on to. Um, and it's, it's what, whenever I feel a little bit confused, I just latch on to that. And, and then I feel much better. You know, I, and I honestly, we didn't get that at the theater school either. We didn't get very many attaboys. I mean, you know, I guess like you could say, not getting cut is a version of is a version of that mm-hmm. but it's it fails to really encompass I mean more so like in intros I don't know if you remember your intros that's what we did in our second year yeah that yeah. was a little more of a caring environment uh, mm-hmm. I think because they knew we were little babies and needed that but after that it was cold yeah there wasn't it's true there was not a lot of 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 attaboys um uh, it, you know, it's funny because one of the things I really liked about the theater school when I, especially when I first arrived there was cause I was just coming from, I'd done high school plays and stuff. Right. It was all just fun. Like in my mind, I think it's fun. You just have fun. You know, you just stand up there and have fun. And I, and I appreciated when I showed up that these teachers were like, this is hard work. The bar is high. Okay. And this is, you got to take this seriously. It's not just about having fun. And you know, some more extreme than others, you know, I mean, David Avcali, he was like a hockey coach of mine. You know, he was like, if you don't, you know, I remember like Sean and I used to uh, talk about, like he told one kid, if you don't get up right now, cause we were, it was a feeling, the heat, <laughs> a feeling, the heat exercise. And this one kid like way overdid it. You know, you're supposed to stand there and feel the heat, right? He's like falling on the ground and he's so hot. He's sweating. And Avcali's like, get up right now and feel the heat. And the kid's like, I am feeling the heat. And he said, he's like, if you don't get up right now and start feeling the heat, I'm going to do everything I can to get you out of this school. <laughs> and the kid's like, okay, he got up. Felt the heat. But like, like I appreciated Avcali kind of being a hard ass. Like I liked him. You know, I remember him saying, you know what guys, theater is expensive. Tickets are very expensive. You have to go deep. You have to go hard. It has to be good. You got to make it worth it. I needed to hear that. Like, I just like, liked, I liked thinking about the work as something that was important and that needed, you know, scrutiny. Maybe I overdid it. You know, maybe I got too into that and maybe that's why I couldn't like 
audition maybe uh, the fun was lost a little bit but i don't know i just liked no, it's a it's a good thing. It's a good thing to remind people of. And I, as you were talking, I was just thinking, yeah, because I had David too. He he did have so many gems, so many wonderful things to say. I wish I had kept my notebooks from that time because I it would be so fun to go back now because I remember writing down some of these things. For me though, it got all you know tangled up in you know, I'll just say the, what I felt was like the emotional terrorism of what he did that I don't really think I care, I could carry any of it with me because being, to be in his class for me was to be on, uh, hyper vigilant. just, so it became about like doing the thing that wouldn't make him say he was going to throw his shoe at you, right? <laughs> which is that. not the same thing as finding you know, the objective in the scene. <laughs> in yes. the scene. I think, yeah. And I think some people can are equipped better for whatever reason we're finding. It's like a research project. When we talk to people, some people have the resiliency inside or the something where they can process what the teachers are saying. And there's those of us who I, I couldn't even, I was like uh, in a fugue state. So I, I don't even remember what they said, but I do know I was terrified. And that works for some people. Like it's an act, it's an actual technique to be terrified. You produce like sports. If you're used to sports, like yeah. Mike Ditka is a real asshole, but he had the best team that ever lived in the bears, you know? So like um, it works for some people. I think. Well, it's like I said, that, that was for me, like he reminded me of a coach. Of, of a literally a hockey coach that I had, you know, and it was like, right. Oh, I understand this, man. I understand this lingo. I understand that, that I got to go harder and it's, it's about striving for something better. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, but I can also understand how you might be like, Hey man, I'm just like a kid trying to just, you know, right. yeah, it's yeah. a, and that's, and that just brings me back to like, it's a weird thing to go to a conservatory when you're 17 years old, because it's, it's it, it, expecting a lot um, from people whose brains are not developed and some people th thrive and look, we made it through. So I'm not saying, you know, like all is lost, but it's so fascinating to me to see what works for different people, you know, what we're, and on set, it's the same thing. So I have had directors that have been like super cuddly and I do great work. And then I've had directors that say, stop all that, what you're doing, don't do that and do something else. And then I'm like, but I think that they're, they're good lessons. You know, we learn by pain and we learn by but it's it we were just you know it's hard when you're a kid it's just hard it's hard when you're yeah. a kid well it's but, hard not to feel like you know this is the gospel like you're in this school and it becomes your whole world right it becomes acting it becomes the acting world to you and it's hard to not realize it's impossible actually to not think this is just a few opinions this is like not this yeah. is not Right. the world of, of a career and and acting and theater or whatever film and tv this is just a few people like you know and this is just and like you look around at the other actors and there's all this oh who's doing what it doesn't matter like like but you don't you can't you but you can't separate it when you're that, that age because no. you're in it you're in the bubble and like wh what else are you gonna do how do you how do you have anything right. to compare it against you have no life experience no, so, uh, that that is so deep. It's just a few. <laughs> it's a few people's opinions. I, it, and, and like to somebody who's in theater school right now, who's in the middle of like this 
intense questioning of themselves, whatever, I would say that it, at the, it, not that you shouldn't take it to heart, you shouldn't try to integrate meaningful notes, you shouldn't take it seriously, but like at the end of the day, you know, it's not as if there's a big caucus of all, you know, people who, who, who take in acting performances and they all say, yes, what David says is right. That is, that is what acting is, or, you know, it's, it's, yes. it's just sort of his idea too. I wanted to hear just also a little bit more about, um, you know, it sounds like you did theater in high school, so you had some some sense of, of it. It may or may not have been the kind of intense and rigorous theater that you ended up doing at the theater school, but like, how did your expectation of what you were going to experience there match up with the reality? Oh, that's a good question. Well, first of all, I don't know what I was expecting. I guess I was expecting, you know, I'm going to be that kid in the photo, right? With the old-timey costume on, doing the theater, Right. So I guess I thought we were just going to put on costumes all day and do accents. I, you know what I, mean? I had no clue what I was getting into. None. So like the first day. Okay. So the night before the first day, some guys in the dorm were like, Hey Lee, you want to go to um, uh, a bar? It's called Kelsey's, right? Oh yeah. Kelly's. Oh, Kel oh. Maybe it was Kelly's. Yeah. Well, I don't yeah. know what it was, but they were like, you buy a mug for five bucks and then you, <laughs> for a quarter, you get to fill it up all, all night with beer, right? I was like, oh, that sounds good, let's go. Okay, terrible, terrible idea, okay? Because the next morning at 8.30 or whatever, I'm in yoga class, mm -hmm. in my jeans, by the way, not even with sweats, because I didn't know I was supposed to wear sweats, hungover, and I'm do doing dog pose for the first time. I've never even knew this thing existed. You know, I'm like, what is this? And I'm not feeling good. And then the rest of the day is like that. It's like pelvic clock and ha ha and all the shit. And then by the end of the day, it's like you're eating thick space. And I'm just like, what have I gotten into? <laughs> what is this place? It, I had no clue, right? No. So kind of for the first quarter, like I, or trying, whatever it is, I did not get, I was not getting it. But then it clicked, then something clicked and I totally got it. And all that stuff, I was like, I was like, give me more of this. Like I loved, once I understood having awareness of what that is, to have awareness of your, you know, of your body and the way you breathe and the way you move and all that stuff. I was like kind of an addict. Like I wanted as much of that as I could get. Um, and, um, and it really worked. And again, I thought the teachers were great. Like they, they really did a great job teaching that. Um, but I did not think that's what I was getting into in any way. And it made, you know, I'm sure for you guys too, it made conversations. You go home for Christmas. Like, oh. so what are you studying? I'm studying yoga. People are like, what? You, you, yoga? I think it costs $30,000 a year. Yeah, you're doing yoga? What? Are you, what? And, uh, and I try to explain it, although I had no reference. So, oh, because it's, um, you know, uh, acting is uh, you, I, I'd be like, I don't know why. I don't know why we're doing yoga. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think my mom said, you're making yogurt. Like I, I think <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of along the line. So I get you. Yeah. So it did well, not and it's, it's, um, Boz and I talk a lot about cults and the theater school is, is a, is a kind of a cult. Um, but mostly from the perspective that it's very hard to explain to anybody else what it is that you're doing there. And, it's um and it's so all consuming i mean in, in part it's because of the schedule because they had us busy from morning till night but it's also being learning acting is is so much about e either changing or at least event 
evaluating like what's happening with you as a person. So if it's going well for you, you're, you're, you're integrating these ideas and these new skills and these, but you're also like reconciling it with your understanding of who you are as a person. You're literally developing your identity as you are putting on other identities. It's just it's, such a complete mind fuck. Yeah, it is. It, it, it was very, it was all very confusing. And, that, and that's kind of what I meant when I said, I feel like the fourth year should really be about, you've got all these things in your toolbox now. And then now we're going to, we're going to forget about all that stuff. Now it's there. You got it. You know how to move and you know how to, you got great posture now and your voice is totally locked in. Okay. Now let's just, let's bring you to this. Let's oh. bring who you are to this and let's focus on that because that is the art that's where the art happens that's you know and so i don't know i don't know i i don't know what they could have done differently but there there are certainly exercises that you could do and just spend the whole year just like filling up filling it up and filling it up with your own shit and just yep. being being that you know being being a full actor it's so interesting because I, the one note that I got from a director that changed my life that I feel like could have saved my life in school was, he said, the thing you think about yourself that isn't going to get you cast is the exact thing that's going to get you cast. And I said, what? That's amazing. I, I thought I was good. I said, can I give you a million dollars? You just, and, and, and he said, figure that out. Because when you figure that out, you're going to be unstoppable and you're going to be totally undeniable. And I thought, oh my God, oh my God. So I think that that, if that had sort of come into play in that fourth year, I think it would have been an easier transition, but I know it's hard to teach that, but you're right. People do teach it and people. And so um, what I'm thinking is that the three of us are going to open up a fourth year acting, just it's going to be called <laughs> the fourth year. There and that's <laughs> No, That's but I, right. but I hear what you're saying. It's like bringing us, we're like, you're okay. Add a girl, you studied, you got all the three years. Now we're going to bring you to the work and you're show you how to do your best. So you book stuff and don't end up living on your parents' couch for 10 years or whatever, well, you know? Yeah. Because the, the a funny thing is, as I reflect back on, on the time there is that, you know, I would get a role, right? I get cast in a role. Well, even if it's a scene in, in class, whatever, let's say it's um, Brick, Katan, isn't that the guy in Katan Hudson Roof? Okay, yeah. I remember doing that, right? In my mind, there was a way to do that role and I was striving to find the way to do that role. Like there was an ideal that I was striving to find instead of how do you do this role, right? I always felt like I was trying to like do what, the 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 thing that they wanted me to do right and, and and it never no one ever said no 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 do it your way man don't don't do it don't try to do what brando did or whoever played the role first do it your way we want your way and it, and if yeah. someone said that to me i feel like a light would have gone off it would that's it's, brilliant it's the difference between working from the outside in or the inside out it's much easier to work from the inside out it's there's so much less um it's like a hat on a hat when you're trying to do Brando doing brick, who is doing, you know, whatever. It, it's much easier if you can say, well, just what are the ways in which brick is like Lee? 
not right. what are the ways right. in which Lee is it's going like to, Brando doing brick. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> contort himself to be something that <laughs> right. he can never ever be. And I, I do listen. It could be that they really did say this to me, and I just couldn't hear it. Yeah, but I, I do really feel like it would have been nice to hear. Um, you're just finding the parts of yourself that are in this character. You're not trying to put this, you know, you know, whatever layer of paint over yourself and, and hope that nobody will, and hope, because for me, it was like, and hope that nobody sees what you're really like, because that's completely uninteresting and wrong for this. You have to, you have to just be this, this other person that has no connection yeah. to you. It well, I think that it's funny because I, I can't fault anybody. Like, I feel like, again, I feel like the teachers were all teaching their discipline really well. And they were, I, you know, I don't fault anyone, but I do feel like there was an overall, there, it was lacking, the school was lacking sort of an overall, overall strategy or philosophy that, that, that included that, that included, listen, we got to keep reminding these kids that, you know, this is about them. And this is th like, as we're asking them to hit this ideal, let's also remind them that, you know, that it's about them becoming their own actor, right? Their own person in this, you know? Yeah. Because everyone's just saying, no, you got to do better than that, better than that, better than that. But like, it's like, but right. I can't, I'm only a kid. I don't know how to do better than that. I think starting from the premise of, and there's a, there's a school um, in Chicago called Black Box Academy that a friend of mine started that literally the, one of their tenants is you are enough because, and, and you are enough lets people so off the hook for, and you are enough be better at this particular thing. Like you're not great at your voice, but you are enough. And, I, and it gives you freedom to be like, oh, oh, I don't have to. So, but it's yes. really hard. It's hard to teach that at the same time, not let people off the hook for their bad habits. So I think no, it becomes a way of true. trying to trick, like tease it out of what, so that's why, you know, it's a hard thing to have an acting school because it's such a bizarre thing to do. It's a mix of psychology. It's a mix of um, human behavior and body language. I mean, it's a whole, I, no, I, I yeah. I it's recognize hard. there's a lot of challenges and there's a very <laughs> fine line and it is true. Like, it's like, you can't, you know, I, I'm looking at it from their point of view and it's like, they, they can't become a parent to every kid there. They can't, like expect every kid to just dump all their all their shit out because that becomes kind of dangerous and it crosses lines and stuff so so i recognize that there's a real challenge in trying to figure out okay how do you get get these kids to go deeper and bring more of themselves but also like not want it though to like you know not have that you know it's challenge it's challenging it's challenging, it's challenging yep. you know yeah. And I, so, yeah. And I always feel like I have to couch all these things and saying like, I, you know, of course, everybody was doing their best and, and, and it's not really a fault. It's more just like, it's not really like I'm trying to, you know, assign blame. It's more just as I get distance from this experience, I'm able to piece it together in such a way to figure out where the disconnects were for me personally. It may have been different for other people. And, yep. you know, but, but it's important for me to, because even though I don't spend any time at all acting, I still am really fascinated with the craft of it. And it's still important for me. I, I feel like I still can 
reap the benefits of what I learned there because I can think back to it without all of the anxiety about like, am I not enough? You know, yeah, I can, sure. I look it through with adult eyes. It's better that way. Sure. Uh, you want to get on a the funny podcast. story? Yes, 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 a funny yes. story. This is um. So you guys were both year behind my year, right? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. You remember your God Squad party? Mm -hmm. Do you remember? Do you remember where it was? That I was. Uh, it was at our apartment. Do you remember that? Oh. It was Val, Val, and Sean, and, and yeah, and yeah. And, and uh, okay, so we decided. <laughs> I don't. I think it was. I think it was my idea. It was a sort of a silly idea, but we decided. For this year's God Squad party, everybody must bring a can of um, canned good to be given to Chicago homeless. That was our way to like turn this like drunken oh, fest. Nice, something nice. Okay, so everyone bring a canned good, and that's your admittance <laughs> to the party. Okay, so have this huge party. Everyone brings not just one. People are bringing handfuls of canned goods, right? So that we got all these canned goods. Next morning, we wake up. There, our apartment's filled with canned goods. We got boxes and boxes of them. And um, so I'm like, okay, I'll call the homeless, Chicago Homeless Authority or whatever, whoever it was. Call them up and say, hey, we had a party. We got a bunch of canned goods for you guys. Um, we want to donate them. So you can come get them. And they're like, oh, we don't come get. <laughs> you got to bring them to us. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, figure that one out. So we thought, uh, I don't know how, we can't carry them and we're poor. We can't even get a cab, whatever. But we'll get to it. We'll get, we'll get these canned goods in them. So a couple of days oh, later, no. we're sitting there watching TV and Val walks in. He's like, you guys mind if I have one of those Chef Boyardee? <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, no, go ahead. And I'm thinking, Chef Boyardee sounds pretty good right now. We ended up eating every can good all, all the way down to like, the only thing left was like cocktail onions and stuff. <laughs> basically you had a rent party but you but but instead of being honest about it you, yes. you made everybody yeah. think that you were Our charitable were, were, were real but uh it ended up you know you know I, what you I, guys I, are called you guys are the dinty more bandits the dinty more <laughs> stew bandits yes. i haven't did, heard the name dinty more since it's in chicago man yeah did you was... live by um wrigley field no we live I Survive Theatre School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth-Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. Follow us on Instagram at Undeniable Writers or on Twitter at Undeniable W-R-I-T-1. That's Undeniable Write without the E-1. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>